I wonder if you were tasked with the challenge of trying to grab an image that would capture what worship is. What would you come up with? I think a lot of times people put hands raised in praise to God, and we put the word worship on it. Sometimes you see maybe hands reverently and solemnly folded, and we would put the word worship on it. A lot of times people think of creation, just awe-inspiring places and how that lifts our gaze to God and it just makes us kind of realize our size in things. Sometimes people point to some great Gothic steeple of a church and the architecture and it just, it's, it was designed and meant to kind of lift our gaze. But don't you see the challenge of trying to get an image that captures what worship is all about? I want you to look at your bulletin or on the screen right now. And uh, this is the image that I've chosen to put this week. And I intentionally stayed away from some of the classic images that people put up. And what I tried to do was capture an image that had a little bit more of an everyday feel to it. And it captured more than just an event or a location or having to do with singing. So many times we use the word worship interchangeably with singing at church or a church service. And even though we can know that there's a difference to that, we sometimes say it so often that our language matters and we start to think of worship as, oh yeah, that's when I have my hands raised or I'm being moved or something along those lines. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the fact that worship is so much more than an event or a location or music. Now, having said all that, let me say this. Music is hugely important. Music is hugely effective at moving our emotions, at bypassing certain things, and moving us in some ways. It's a very powerful component, is it not? But music, just in and of itself, can also be really deceptive. There was a woman working at a medical clinic in South Africa, and she was down there serving the Lord, and she heard these, these women singing, these Zulu women singing this song, and it was a haunting melody, and she was just moved to tears. And she goes to her friend, who's been down there a lot longer, and she said, would you please translate for me what they're saying? And she says, uh, sure. And here were the lyrics. If you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. That's what they were singing. They were singing that over and over and over. And this Christian woman was just moved by this experience. So, so you see that music in and of itself can be really deceptive. It can take us in directions that we may not necessarily want to go. Consider this, that far from the opening act, God cares about our music. He cares about our singing. Uh, in the middle of your Bible is the longest book of the Bible, and it's a collection of what? Songs, right? God commands both instrumental and vocal praise. God the Father sings. Listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now we know that Jesus must have sung more than this, but it's at least recorded that on the night before he died, just after instituting the Lord's Supper, it says that him and his disciples sang a hymn and then departed the place. And God the Spirit inspires songs and melodies in the hearts of believers, and we're instructed to communicate with one another with these songs as we're filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
and communicate to each other with these songs that he fills us with. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We serve a singing, musical God. Music was there at the beginning. In Job 38.4, God's asking Job some questions. You may remember that. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Music was there at the, at creation. Music's going to be there at the end. When the victorious at the end of the age will, according to Revelation 15, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying this, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will, fe- who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So church, this morning we've paused to have a little worship focus right in the middle of our singing to say this. How can we but keep from singing right now? So we're going to sing some more. We're going to use this means of God to, to draw into to worship Him. And what's amazing about the New Testament is there's a stunning silence about exactly how we are to gather and sing songs as a church. But that we are supposed to be coming together and singing as the body of Christians, the New Testament is loud and clear that that is what we're to be doing. So just now, as the band continues to lead us, um, let's sing and make melody to the Lord. Open up to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, we're going to start there uh, this morning. Uh, how many of you are part of a family? Let your hands. All right. A good 80% are listening. That's excellent. Uh, you are all part of a family, whether you like to admit it or not. Uh, we have some entering the phase uh, that denies that they have parents or, uh, or are part of a family at all. Uh, when they get dropped off somewhere and their friends ask who just dropped them off, uh, they must answer the butler or something, because I, I'm quite convinced they are not wanting to have us as parents. Uh, if you're part of a family, you know that families fight. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, some of you, it's like a deep guttural amen, right? Because it's been one of those weeks. Uh, um, I'm not sure what you fight about, and I even contemplated asking, but I thought that could get into um, hours of counseling. And, uh, and so we won't go there this morning. Um, but here are just a few things that, that families fight about, okay? Ranging from the mundane to, to really important things, okay? Uh, some families, believe it or not, fight over which direction the toilet paper hangs, right? Uh, the correct way, clearly, is that it hangs out, ready for a nice even tear. Um, some, amen, thank you. Some families, I told you, some things are very important I'm going to mention, which is that one, of course. Some fight about time and schedule. God um, has a huge sense of humor and often puts late people with early people. That's fun. Um, money gets fought about, believe it or not. Uh, that's a shock, but people fight over money sometimes. Um, who gets the remote control? Um, is is one of them. Of course, now you can actually get your phone to control your DVR, so it really makes for some fun battles. You know, you could zap from all over the place. Holidays, that stirs up a good fight or two sometimes, doesn't it? Um, let's celebrate and fight. I mean, that just kind of goes hand in hand for some reason. In-laws, right? There's a lot of in-law jokes because people fight about their in-laws. Uh, in my family, we fight about whose turn it is incessantly about all kinds of things. We've actually instituted, like at Marianne's Ice Cream, a number system. Uh, so we just have people take a number, and no matter what the category, we can always know whose turn it is, right? They never seem to um, 
work. Uh, if you are a guest or new to the Christian family, I have a little secret for you. The Christian family fights. The Christian family fights too. Shocking, I know. Um, here is one of the big things that Christians fight about. Worship. Christians love to have them a good tangle about worship. Now, not the biggies about worship, the, the most important things about worship, but rather, and most often, worship music and what happens when we come together as a believing body. Now, as oxymoronic as it seems to be fighting about your worship of God, it happens in part because we fight about, we, we, we put up a fight about things that we care deeply about. And as a Christian, you care deeply about the Lord. And you care deeply about that expression of it. So, so there's some grace there to understand why, why would we ever fight? I mean, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would we fight about this? Well, there, there is some, some sense to it because we care deeply about it. Um, the other thing is this has been going on for a really, really long time. We inherited this fight uh, from our ancestors. Now, that doesn't excuse it, but it's just true. Martin Luther, have you heard of him before? He was kind of this big deal during the Reformation, right? Huge historical figure. I've learned a lot from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in an intro to a collection of songs uh, that, he, um, that, that were written, he wrote this. He wrote that anyone who didn't appreciate the beauty of these multi-part pieces and view them as a gift from God, quote, must be a clodhopper indeed and does not to deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. The great Martin Luther. Now, what he lacked intact, he makes up for in passion, right? He cares deeply about the Lord, and so he makes this sweeping statement. Uh, it would be an interesting worship service to be like, you, you don't seem to be enjoying this. You don't deserve to be called a human being. Who said that? The pastor, right? I mean, that's, that's what Martin Luther was in that. 200 years later, American churches were debating the merit of whether we should sing by ear or by note. Meanwhile, British churches argued whether they should use hymns, quote, of human composure, in other words, written by humans, particularly those of that rabble-rouser, Isaac Watts. A uh, hundred years after Watts died, surely things had gotten much better? No. hundred years after Watts died, people would still walk out of a service if someone started singing anything other than a psalm put to music. God help us, right? This is how it was then, Fast forward to now, this is how it is now. Greater than is a series we've been looking at to say, where should we put the emphasis? We're filled with choices in this life, and where should we put the emphasis? What, what should we focus most on, and, and, and thereby leaving other parts of it? What is God's priority for worship? What's greater than? What's weightier in the area of worship? What are we supposed to prioritize? What does Jesus have to say on the priority of worship? We're going to take two weeks on this. We're going to take this week to kind of get to some foundational things, and next week we're going to touch on, on some other things. But as I said in the, in the little worship focus at the start, worship is so much more than a place or an event or music, and that's where we want to steer 
our thoughts this morning. If you look at God's heart for worship, what you realize with the Bible as you start to read it, even if you're a novice, you begin to read it, you understand that the Bible is a worship book. It's not like because there's songs in the middle, the book of Psalms, that's the worship part of the book. The whole thing is a worship book. In fact, God commands worship. We worship God because he commands it. We worship God because he deserves it. We worship God because, catch this, we were actually designed to worship. We were made to worship God. Now, if you don't choose to worship God, you will worship something. We are incessant worshipers. That's what we are. It's interesting to look around and just see, I wonder what a person worships. We're going to kind of dive into this with community group questions this week. But those things that you sacrifice for, those things that you give yourself to, those things that you find yourself just beholding, those things that you talk incessantly about and ascribing worth and glory and and beauty to, that's what you worship. And we have a world full of worshipers. Lots of the fighting that happens in the church comes from elevating one's personal taste and putting it on par with divine command. And I remember as a child, part of my spiritual development was to understand, oh, wow, this is the way we did things in this worship family, in this local church that I grew up in, but nowhere in the Bible is that commanded. So that's optional. It's fine that we did it that way, but that's not the only way. And for me, one of the most explosive ways of doing that was going off to a Bible college that had uh, many, many countries and all the continents represented. And I shared a roommate with a a South Korean um, and a guy from India. And pretty quickly, the guy from San Jose had his mind blown on different ways of doing worship and different ways of of relating to the Lord. And it was really, uh, really a good season for that. The second reason there's lots of fighting, there's probably lots of readings, but at least the second one is this. There's a reality that worship is both objective and subjective. It's, it's part science and it's part art. And some of our infighting as a church family, and by the way, let me just say this to some of the visitors, nothing's hugely on fire here. This isn't in response to, you're like, wow, there must have been some doozies. The pastor's preaching our worship. Uh, this is just in the flow of our series. Um, but you, you, you are a church long enough and you come across these things. You fight about these kinds of things. So this is more uh, proactive rather than reactive to something going on currently. But part of the infighting that churches have are just the reality that, that those who lean more objective and those who lean more subjective um, want their way and don't see the other side of that. Um, This is a quote that you may have seen before. Um, It says this, The knowledge of God is very far from the love of Him. The knowledge of God is very far from the love of Him. I love that the person who said this was Blaise Pascal, who was a noted 17th century scientist and mathematician. You would think left brain, objective, uh, things. And yet here he is talking about to know God doesn't mean necessarily that you, that you love him. Um, there, there are objective truths. There are revealed realities to know. And the scriptures say over and over to grow in that knowledge. Um, over and over, the Bible, God makes a point of saying, these are the things we have seen and heard ourselves. We testify that they are objectively true. Not touchy-feely, true. Now, on the, at the same time, from the beginning, God set up 
this whole worship thing in the context of love, in the context of relationship. And like all relationships, that means there's going to be emotion, that means there's going to be passion, and that means there's going to be confusion because we confuse one another. As you try to get to know someone, you learn something new and you go, huh, I didn't know that part of them. I didn't see that side of them before. And and you move forward in that relationship. And that's exactly how God has set up worship. The central truth is already written down for you. If you're not a good note taker, take a big sigh of relief because it's already written down for you. The central truth that I want you to grab this morning is in the title. To worship the true God truly. That's the crux of the matter. That's what I want you to walk away with this morning. We're going to see that Jesus drives this point home really, really clearly. But if you get nothing else, look at your title, circle your title, underline it, point to it and say central truth. Do something to highlight this is, this is what we're talking about this morning. I want to start in Deuteronomy 6 uh, this morning, and hopefully you're already there. Um, and I want to start with something that uh, is referred to as the Shema. And if you were a, um, a good Jewish boy or girl uh, growing up, you would quote this every single day. In fact, many Jews today would, would, would practice quoting this uh, every single day. This is how they would begin their day. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit down, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be uh, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God giving the community of Israel his chosen people instruction about worshiping. And do you see the word he uses? Love. Do you see where these things are supposed to be? They're supposed to be in our heart. And you're supposed to teach them to your children. So again, there are objectives, truths to teach, commands to teach that aren't up for debate, and there are subjective realities. Now, flowing out of this, what we see illustrated really clearly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the following. We see scenes of both quiet and very, very expressive worship. One of the great things about the the, the authors of the scriptures, we get to see inside the hearts and minds of people, just like any author, of what people were feeling and what they were thinking. And so sometimes someone is worshiping intensely and looks like their mouth is moving and actually someone else thinks that they've been drinking early in the morning. Um, and really what we know from the scriptures, no, that person was deep in worship, quiet and intimate. And other scenes where it's really expressive. There's the spontaneous, uncontrolled, almost sneeze-like reflex that comes that you can't even withhold of people falling down in awe before the Lord. It's actually really powerful to um, look, look down or, or look, look up in, in Scripture, falling down or falling down in reverence or awe or whatever. There's just so I have a whole list of them uh, from a from a previous talk I did one time. Just this this falling down before the glory of the Lord. There's also the I can't possibly hold it in kind of praise. 
Have you ever just been in a moment where you're just like, I, I can't hold this in? Uh, this is the woman at the well who, who just pours this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. Remember that? She got in trouble for it. She got in trouble for how objectively inefficient that was. And yet she couldn't hold it in. She had to praise her Savior. And she's commended for it. There's also that overwhelming, rushing river of worship that comes pouring out of your life, whether it's convenient at the time, uh, cool, dignified, or not. And here I'm thinking of David as he's coming into the city with the Ark of the Lord. And it says he danced with all of his might. And if you remember the story from, from First Chronicles, his wife is looking not so pleasingly on him, thinking he's a fool for doing so. Remember his response? Man, I'll become even more undignified than this. You haven't seen anything yet. Yeah, and he just couldn't hold it in. He was praising the Lord with all that he was. Worship the true God truly. Let's take a look at, at Jesus' uh, priority for this. What does Jesus have to say on this? Go ahead and flip open to our passage. We're going to linger in John chapter 4 the rest of the morning. But while you're doing so... You could write down uh, Mark 12. In Mark 12, uh, 29 and following, what you have is this. Jesus being tested. Very familiar scene. Jesus is being tested by some religious authorities. And they're asking him, uh, essentially to trap him, but what the most important command is. What I want you to see is what Jesus does. He takes them to the Shema. Here's Mark, now Jesus talking, 12, 29. Jesus answered, the most important is. And then... He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then Jesus does something. He ties in a second command. But what I want you to notice is he uses the singular term that this is the most important commandment, singular, making these two one. He goes on to say this, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So here Jesus is saying the greatest commandment is worship. So why am I spending two weeks on this? Because worship is vastly important to the, to the, to the, to the whole of scripture and from the words of Jesus. Heartfelt Worship, loving God and then obeying Him, loving other people as well. Do you see how this has to spill way out past the boundaries of Sunday morning? This certainly isn't talking about music. This isn't talking about singing for a few minutes during the week as the community of God. This is something much, much bigger. Today we're going to be talking and thinking. I want to point your mind toward the difference between kind of essence and form. And right now what I want you to do is I want you to touch someone. I don't want you to do it in an annoying way. I don't want you to do it in a creepy, illegal way. Just touch someone quickly and then get over with it, okay? Um, when you are, when, when, when you say that someone touched you, you were deeply touched by something. It doesn't refer to what we just did, right? It doesn't necessarily just mean that your body was touched by something. As you think about your body and as your body ages, you begin to, you know, you can fall into the trap of thinking that you are what your body is when you're young, but the older you get, the more you're like, no, that's not true. That is not true. And you start to realize that that body 
is not the essence of who you are. This isn't who I am, and that's not who... And yet we have all of these forms here, and all of God's beautiful, creative, diverse forms that are here. This is probably most apparent to me when I'm at a funeral. And if there's an open casket and I'm looking at a body, I look at that person, and especially if I knew them or knew them well, I go, this isn't the essence of who they are. So form and essence are two totally different things. Tracking with me? Okay. Greater than the form of worship, and by form of worship I would consider things like location and times and dress code and instruments and songs and tempo and drums, whatever else might be there, is the essence of worship. So greater than all of the forms we could talk about and debate and strategize about and all of that is the essence of worship. What is the soul of worship? Not just the body of worship, not just what, what worship puts on that Sunday, but what is, what is the, the, the crux of the matter? What is the substance? And that's what we're after this morning. Next week, we're actually going to take some time to get into some of the specific expressions of worship that we find in Scripture. And what you'll be pleased to know is there's just this massive, wide variety. And you may learn something new. You may see some things that surprise you. We'll also look more closely at Jesus' word on the matter. So, what is the essence or the priority? I've got three things this morning that if you're taking notes, quite simply, there's going to be one thing is greater than something else. In worship, the priority is on the inside not on the outside. Outside forms can be completely on point, can be exactly within the realm of Scripture and all of that, and no one's worshiping. I discovered this one time when I was at, uh, at a service with, with some family. And as I was there, I, I, um, and, and, uh, and I, was, I was a Christian by this point, and I had been to to Bible college, and I was studying to be a pastor, I think, at the time, and, and um, I remember being in this service, and it was a very different flavor of service than I had been used to, because it was Episcopalian in its, in its flavoring, and I don't know about the rest of the people. I wasn't there to see this in the rest of the people, but what I knew was this. What happened in that service was really interesting, because we read all these scriptures that were right out of the, out of the Bible, and very moving to me. There were some call and response things that were a little different than I was used to. And the, the thing that the worship leader would call out and the thing that the congregation would respond to was very powerful and moving. And, and as I sat through that service, everything was on point. I mean, it was really all biblical stuff, but here was the weird thing. The rest of my family that I had come down there with came in, turned on the worship show for about an hour on that Sunday, and then left the building and turned off the worship show. And, and before and after that one hour where we sat formally, very similar to something like this, um, God was not um, reverenced. God was not talked about. God was not loved. In fact, God was not only not acknowledged, but there were whole swaths of things going on that were mocking God that we're making light of his commands. And so, and so in that moment, it was powerful for me to see that the forms of worship can be right on point and worship isn't going on. Now, 
Lest you think I'm heaping that on someone else, let me just bring that home. That can happen in here on a Sunday morning every single week. That's part of what we're talking about, is guarding against this. Guarding against the show. Guarding against coming in here and on this week, getting charged up to do God things, and then walk out of here and do whatever we want until next week. Now, I love this church community. I love this family. I want you guys to know, I thank God that I get to pastor at this church. I really do. Thank God who I get to work with. I thank God for the people that I shepherd. Not every part of my job is easy. I can promise you that. But I love being here. And part of what I love being here about is this. I love the heartfelt inside focus of worship that goes on here. And not just on Sunday mornings. In Malachi, I'm going to give you a few verses. In Malachi chapter 1, God uses Malachi, the prophet, to expose what had gone on with corporate worship in that day. And in Malachi 1.10, it says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would, catch this, shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. What is it that God, what is it that was going on that God wanted to shut down the worship services? He says, man, I wish there was one among you that would just shut the whole thing down. You know what it was? It was laid back worship. It was just going through the motions. It was people coming and just just kind of giving leftovers. This is what we do, but there was no inside to it. You catch it? The outside was on point. They were following the commands, but the inside was hollow. In Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to, to the church at Laodicea. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Instead, listen to what Jesus longs for. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. So instead of lackadaisical, laid-back worship, be zealous in our worship. Second passage, Acts 5.1. You may not recognize Acts 5.1, but you'll catch the story by this. It says this, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of... Of property. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you know kind of the backstory on this. Basically, what was happening is this. Others in corporate worship, so in services like this, were coming and bringing extravagant gifts. They were selling property and bringing it to the, to the, to the pastor, basically, and just saying, here, this is to be used for kingdom work. And God was just doing some great things, prying people away from their hope and money and their possessions and whatnot. And they were being sacrificial. And and Sapphira were a couple sitting in the church service somewhere. And you know what? They wanted in on this. So, here's what they did. They went off and sold some property. But their motives were exposed when they came and brought the price to the, to the church service. Their motive was exposed because of this. They had conspired together to do what? Keep some of it back. Wasn't that a great worship service? Wasn't that so powerful that people were giving their stuff? God is so good. I don't even think that this was, you know, 
so far off of what, and so people were like, man, we want in on that. But their motive was exposed when they kept back some of the price, and then they lied about it. And the penalty for their outward good-looking acts, but inside sinful hearts, was death. Right in front of the community. First one, and then the other. Do you think God takes worship seriously? Now, this would make for really interesting offertories, right? I mean, if this happened this week, how would it be next week, right? Hey, come and give sacrificially. Give to the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. But in our bulletin, you know, it's like, this may cause harm. You know, like we just have to put a little warning in there to say, this could be a harmful activity, giving, giving your offering. Make, make sure you're doing it from a pure heart. That's a really powerful story. And to think that that happened in a church service, you think, wow, God must really care about this. He really wanted to instill in people that, um, that, that pure-hearted total devotion was a good thing. Look at Jesus flesh this priority out more. In John chapter 4, see, I keep telling you to go places and then I don't go there. John chapter 4, Jesus is talking uh, with a woman at the well, and, and we pick it up in John uh, 4.20. They're having this conversation, and, he's, and she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And by you, she meant Jews, say, to, to worship there. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman had her focus wrong. Her focus was on location, right? Is it this mountain, or is it Jerusalem? And if you can't get to the mountain, you're supposed to point that way. So which is it? What she was doing is very, very common. She was going right to the current controversy of her day. Now, what's the current controversy of our day? I hear very few people wrestling about where they're supposed to point when they pray. That's not the current controversy. The current controversy of our day is traditional service or contemporary service. Interestingly, the more uh, that conversation goes on, a lot of younger people are like, uh, that's not even contemporary anymore. That's now traditional. What are you even talking about? But that's one battle that, that, that goes on. Um, another one is... Spirit-filled, which you could kind of translate as uber-expressive, versus dignified. And I guess you would call that spirit-unfilled. I'm not sure exactly on that. But you basically have the more expressive, less expressive um, going on. Um, I have I have frustrated. I was a worship leader for a long time, and I've frustrated everyone in every camp. And that's part of there should really be hazard pay for worship pastors. I promise you that. In college... I was leading worship one time for our chapel, and afterwards I had two guys come up to me and they said, man, we loved your worship. We just, we just think God is, is using you in powerful ways and could use you all the more. And I was like, oh. And I felt like I was being sold Amway all of a sudden. It was kind of interesting. I was like, hmm. 
You know, so I'm eating my lunch. I'm like, okay, what's up? And they wanted me to be spirit-filled. And I said, brothers, I am spirit-filled. I said, I've got the Holy Spirit. And they said, yeah, we know that. We, we know. Don't mean to be defensive. But we mean really spirit-filled. Now, what that meant, I began to learn something. So I started asking around and finding out what they were talking about. And so I, I wasn't quite in with that camp. They, you know, I was, was kind of close with them. Uh, another time I was leading worship, I was pretty new at a church, and I was leading worship, and this would fall into the more dignified kind of camp of church. And I sang this line, Oh, I feel like dancing. Okay, now I sang that from the main service in the church service. Now, let me show you. You guys have seen me lead worship before. Um, there's a show called So You Think You Can Dance. My resounding answer is no, I don't, and I make no bones about it. When I lead worship, people are like, man, how come you're not into it? I'm like, I am. And they're like, how come you don't dance? I am. My dancing is right here. Look at my right foot. That's my dancing and maybe a little sway. That's all you want to see me of dancing, okay? You don't want to see me dance. Uh, that is That is just not how I express myself in worship. And I had a person come up and say, young man, we don't dance at this church. And I, I said, I said, okay. I mean, literally, I'm brand new. And I'm like, I'm like, and I was wondering why, I didn't even know why she was telling me this. And she told me, she, I said, why is this, a, why is this a concern to you? Um, did you see me? Are, you know, can you see? I, I didn't know if you saw me. I wasn't really dancing. And, but that line, oh, I feel like dancing really threw her for a loop. Well, I've got some scripture on that. <laughs> so I just I just tried to gently nudge her to say, you know, there's a lot of dancing in scripture. And now, now, just to put your mind at ease, I just feel like dancing. I don't tend to ever get there, so I'm probably not going to freak you out a whole bunch. And if you noticed in the church service, no one broke out into dancing of any kind, actually. Um, so we're probably okay. But, but I've really frustrated every camp with this, and there's lots of people to frustrate with worship, right? What the woman was doing is classic for what happens when, when the conversation goes around to, um, to worship, and that is to get in, involved in forms and talk about peripheral things, side things, clothes that are put on, outside skin, rather than the essence, rather than the, than the soul. Jesus, in verse 21, he turns the conversation from the past about worshiping, hey, our father said this mountain, your, your tradition says this one. Which is it? What does Jesus do? He takes and he says, a time is coming. And he points it toward the future. Isn't that cool? A lot of people love to talk about traditional, right? And what's, what's established and what we should be doing and what's worked in the past and all of that. Jesus just launches it forward into the future. Hey, a time is coming. Part of what he was pointing to is his passion, his suffering. Jesus was ushering in a new season of worship that was going to affect both of the Jews and the Gentiles. She was hung up on forms. Jesus gives her the priority. The priority, spirit and truth. The New Testament describes worship. And again, because of Jesus, worship is dramatically changed. The New Testament describes worship as non-place oriented and non-event oriented. If you read the Old Testament through, what you see is you see a lot about ceremony and season and rituals, and those were central. And now what's central is what goes on in the heart. No longer do we go to God, meaning the temple, but God comes to us and dwells in us. And we become the temple of God. Jesus is our priest, and his spirit allows for our worship to take place anywhere, anytime. 
And then in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truly spiritual worship. This is the priority that Jesus is laying out. One of the things worship leaders are prone to say sometimes is this, wow, people were really worshiping today. If you ask a worship leader what they mean by that, they might say something like this. Um, you know what? They were tearing up. They were nodding their head up and down. They were in serious contemplation. They had hands raised. They were falling down. There was jubilation. Now, any and all of that may accompany a worship service, but don't you see that that quite possibly has nothing to do with actual worship? Those are all outward forms. Those are outward expressions. And so what happens is a worship leader is really trying to direct focus to God, and a preacher is doing the same thing, and all of that is just left in the Lord's hands. And sometimes it seems like you guys are really with me. And sometimes it really seems like you're not. And if it was really me focused, I could go home and beat myself up. Rob and Ben and others who are up here could beat themselves up going, oh, we just didn't hit it well enough. There was no tears. You know, no one said amen. Very few people nodded unless they were sleeping, you know. And so we could really make it about about us. But all these external forms are just that. They're external forms. And they very very well may be part of genuine worship, but they don't dictate that worship did or did not happen. True spiritual worship spills way over the bounds of Sunday morning worship because of this fact that we're now the temple of God. Listen to these verses, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Go eat lunch today and worship God. Be able to attach God's name to where you eat, what you eat, and how you interact with the people that you eat with. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, are these two verses describing Sunday morning worship? No, they're describing life, right? Whatever you do, word, deed, food, drink, wherever you go, do it all to the glory of God. So do, act, think, speak, live in such a way that it brings God praise, and do so with a thankful heart. And that's worship. Number two is this, that truth is greater than make-believe. Verse 22, they, Jesus says, you the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. It matters that you worship the true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's, a, that's an important communication that God wants us to have. Not only did the Samaritans worship a God they didn't really know, people do that today as well. People worship a God after their own image. People worship a worship experience. Music's really, really powerful. Just ask the woman at the South African clinic. And you can come and feel really good and energized and leave and not even worship. You're worshiping what you, what you do not know. Think about this. A God that never contradicts you sets you up as God. If God is exactly like you, you're worshiping yourself. And what happens today is this. Um, part, of, part of the role of a worship leader is to ever be peeling back layers and reminding and pointing the spotlight on who we are worshiping and making sure that's a really accurate picture. 
And we do that, we do that very carefully with song lyrics. We do that very carefully with, with what scriptures are read in between. We, we want to constantly be pointing who we're worshiping. We're not just singing, uh, for no reason. The God of this age, the God that many people worship, is obsessed with comfort, is loving, is nice, is tender and caring, knows that the future will be okay, and by okay, I mean easy and comfortable and safe, and is wanting to grant you success in this life. That's the God that many people worship. They've come to believe that's who God is. Now, the true God is obsessed with his glory and your sanctification. You want to know God's will for your life? It's that you be sanctified. That's a priority. The true God is loving and good and promises justice. That means wrath for evil, reward for good. The true God holds the future in his hands, but he has already promised you hardship awaits and that this world is passing away and isn't your home. We have the God is love side down as a culture. We don't so much have the God is wrath side down, do we? We've, we've made a God that serves us to some degree and not understanding who God is. I love the song we just sang, show us who you are. We've come to worship you. You shine in holiness and in righteousness. You show us who you are, we'll adjust our image of who you are. What you think about God might be the most important thing about all of you. All right. The fact that God is alive, the fact that God is powerful, the fact that God is seated on a throne today leads us to uh, this, this third one. The third one is that exclusive is greater than inclusive. Now, this lands on modern ears as kind of a negative. You kind of think, oh, wait, I think we're supposed to be more tolerant and inclusive. But when you remember that God reveals himself to us as his spouse, do you see how great exclusive is? The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. Exclusive is a good thing. So even at the threat of your life, don't worship another. It's adultery on God. Three verses. Daniel 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. What was the king's command? Not to worship God. Even at the threat of their life, set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Why did they do that? Because they knew he was the one true God. They were convinced of it. Here's the second one. Luke 4, 7. Satan is seeking to seduce you. Look at what happens when, when Jesus is tempted. Here's how he answers. If you then, Satan says, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only shall you serve. One more. Nobody is immune to this. I mean, if Satan's going after Jesus, the gall of that, right? No one's immune to the enemy of your soul seeking to seduce you. 
Revelation 22. Here's a biblical author, John, writing. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Do you catch that? He's falling down to worship this angelic being. John knows better by this point. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I find huge comfort that a guy who just wrote part of the Bible is screwing up like that. Hey, get up! Worship God! If John's not immune to it, he's caught up in the Spirit writing the Bible, don't think you're immune to this. You will constantly be tempted to cheat on God, not on your life. Don't do it. All right. Here's what I wrap up with. If you are worried more about the outside than the inside, repent and return to your first love. You might need some people in your life to help to help involve this with you. One of the things you could ask is this, what do I do for appearances? Do I do anything in worship particularly for appearances, to kind of up, up, uphold appearances? Number two, do you worship the true God or one that you've constructed? And here's the most pressing question. What's your guidance system for that? How do you know? How can you tell the difference? That's part of why as we read Scripture and study Scripture and walk through life, it's good to do that in community. Because other people could say, hey, wait a minute. You're talking about God as if that's written. Where, where do you see that written somewhere? How do you know that? Well, I just feel that he wants me to have this new Maserati. Well, brother, I think there's some scriptures we need to talk about, right? Number three, is there another that you worship? Be on guard for that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your instruction for us, the freedom we have of worship. I thank you, God, so much for putting in our family very objective left-brained people and very subjective right-brained people. God, we thank you for the engineers and the artists. We thank you, God, for how we can grow and love and see a more total picture of you. God, I pray that you would help us to use our times together on Sundays to put into practice Philippians 4, God, that says not to look out just for our own interests, but to consider other people's interests as even more important than our own. I pray that would be true in in what we do and how we engage on Sunday mornings. Just now, God, I, I thank you for music the way that it moves us. In Jesus' name, amen.